As we go to the Word this morning, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. We've been in Isaiah through Advent, the first three weeks of Advent. This is technically the fourth week of Advent and Christmas Eve, which is an interesting uh, occasion. Uh, but for this fourth, fourth week, we're going to be in Luke. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and we'll be in Luke chapter 2 this evening. We've been anticipating the coming of Christ, reading about how Isaiah is looking forward to the coming of Jesus, who he will be. Today, we're going to see him. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, we're going to read about the Annunciation, the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. And in Luke chapter 2, we will read about the coming of Jesus himself. That's this evening, so stay tuned. This morning we're going to focus on Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. And the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, um, it's, been, it's been a joy, my joy now a few times to have my wife walk in the room and say, I'm pregnant. <laughs> or... Somehow you told me. Oh, not, oh, yes, to be clear, this is not an announcement. This is not an announcement. I should make that clear. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and then later on, a few months, a couple of weeks into the, a few weeks into the pregnancy, to have the 20-week the ultrasound and to, to be, be told, it's a boy, it's a girl. Right, to, and then to imagine, what will this child be like? Um, with Nora, it was hard because we she was our first baby. It was like, what will a baby be like? We have no idea. And then with Ransom, it was a little bit different because we had an idea of what a baby would be like. But, oh, a boy, how will he be different? What will his personality be like? Um, Mary must have shared some of those questions, but she, she had her own set of questions, too when she received this birth announcement, not from a pregnancy test or an ultrasound, but out of the mouth of an angel, a messenger of the Lord, who actually gave her more insight than a pregnancy test or an ultrasound as to who this child would be. Our focusing question this morning is this, who is this child? Who is this child? The angel's going to give Mary two main answers, the son of David and the son of the Most High. Let's read our passage together and then we'll pray. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And it will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, even as you revealed through your messenger, this angel, to Mary, the identity and the mission and the task and the kingdom of your son. Please show us Jesus this morning, that we might know who he is, not merely intellectually, that we would have words to describe him, but Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would cause us to have a living encounter with the living Christ. And that in, in coming to know this Jesus, this Emmanuel, this God with us, that you would reconcile yourself to us and show us your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first two verses here, 26 and 27, describing the setting for us, giving us a little background on, on Mary, are are, um, are pregnant with foreshadowing that this is all about the Messiah. The sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee. That's where the Messiah was going to dawn. Named Nazareth to a virgin. Remember Isaiah spoke of a child born of a virgin. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Remember, Messiah is meant to come from the house of David, right? This whole thing is leading us, causing us to, if, 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 you're, if you're a Jew with a good knowledge of the Old Testament and your expectations of the Messiah, you'd read these verses and you'd sit forward in your seat, right? Oh, what's going to happen? Galilee, virgin, David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Her name is interesting. We'll come back to that. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. We're not told where she was when the angel came to her. Oftentimes the, the, the painters put her sort of in her, in her bedroom, sort of sitting on the edge of her bed, and the angel comes. Right? I don't know where she was, but an angel came. And we're told that she was greatly troubled at the saying. It seems in Scripture most every time an angel appears to someone, they're greatly troubled. I imagine if an angel came to you, you would be greatly troubled to see the glory of a messenger of God revealed. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, which is a nice thing to say, but it still left Mary with some questions. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What does this mean? What does this mean that an angel would come to me? 
She had heard probably in synagogue the stories of maybe the angels coming to Abraham, the, appearing, the Lord appearing to Abraham. But here an angel was appearing not to, not to great Abraham right, or Moses, but, but to her. What, what kind of greeting might this be? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, which is what the angels always have to say. <laughs> Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's the second time he said this, favor. The word in the original language is charis. It's grace. God has shown his grace to you. God has been gracious to you. Greetings, O graced one. The Lord is with you. God is going to be gracious to you, Mary. What does that mean? In what way will God graciously deal with Mary? You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. The grace of God to Mary is the gift of a child. And you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, it's Joshua which means God saves. He will be great. You'd imagine if, a, if the birth is accompanied by the announcement of angels, he's some kind of a great child. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. We'll come back to that. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Perhaps these names aren't too familiar to us. House of Jacob, throne of David, what does this mean? Mary would have understood very well what was meant here. Mary was brought up going to synagogue. I, I'm imagining a conversation here, but conversations like this would have happened all the time in this place and in this time amongst this people. I, am, I can imagine a conversation of... Mary's parents speaking to her at some point in her growing up. Maybe her dad complaining about paying the Roman taxes. <laughs> the, these people were under the oppressive boot of the Roman Empire. And the hope and the expectation of the Jewish people in this day was that one day Messiah would come. The king, the, the son of David, to rule over the house of Jacob. This is the messianic hope we've been tracing through Isaiah, right? That one day there's this king who's going to come. And of course, David's important. We've talked about this, but just a brief summary. David's important because David was a great king and God promised that, that David's kingdom would go forever. And then it ended. And Israel's looking around and saying, what, what does this mean? And what the prophets say is that, that one day the Messiah will come, one to restore the throne of David. And restore the fortunes of Israel. But not just that. As we've seen in Isaiah. When the Messiah was going to come. Not only would he restore the glory of Israel. He would bring a reign of peace and righteousness. Which was spread over the whole earth. And all the nations would be brought unto God. And so there's this worldwide vision of when the Messiah comes. Mary underst understands all this. Perhaps her father had said at one point. Mary one day Messiah will come. Maybe in your lifetime, 
Maybe God, will, maybe God will deliver us as he did in the days of Moses. In the days of Mo- Moses and his sister Miriam. Maybe he will deliver you, Miriam. Maybe you will see the salvation of God even as Moses and Miriam did. And here the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says, Your salvation is at hand, Mary. You will see the kingdom of Messiah and he will come from your womb. And you will name him Yeshua, Joshua, the salvation of God, the namesake of the one who brought the people into the promised land. The Messiah is coming, the one to bring the people into a new promised land. She would have understood all of this. She doesn't have questions about that. She doesn't have questions about the David thing. As she celebrates later, later in the chapter, our call to worship was, was Mary's words in the Magnificat later, later in this chapter. Mary celebrating the salvation of God. She understands the weight of what's happening here. But she does have one question about the details. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? He says, this would be a very kind of, un- very unusual kind of Pregnancy, Gabriel. She was betrothed, we're told, to a man whose name was Joseph. Betrothal at this time is um, a more tightly bound legal arrangement than engagement in our day. Engagement in our day is just sort of a, a word of mouth promise. In their day, it really was a contractual agreement. There very likely had already been an exchange of, of goods or of finances. The families had agreed Mary and Joseph were going to be married. Um, They'd been officially betrothed, but they had not yet been officially married, and they had not consummated their marriage. And so Mary says, I'm not sure how you expect this is going to happen, Gabriel. And so the angel explains, and he explains what he meant by calling this child the son of the Most High. The angel answered her in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The explanation here is that there would not be a human father, that the child would be conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously. Now, this is very strange. It's very strange because no one's ever been born like this before. It's very strange because every man and woman who's ever walked this earth, except for Adam and Eve, was born of the union of a man and a woman. So something is happening here in in Mary's womb that has not happened since the creation of the world. Amen. And so there's, there's a few implications of this, of this odd arrangement. First of all, we should note that, that though this child will be of divine parentage, he is also of human parentage. There's a couple of reasons why that's important. He's born of a woman. And this goes all the way back to the promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Way back at the beginning, 
when everything had just fallen apart and the curse had come on this world because of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That one day a savior would come from the line of Eve. Right? A son of Eve would come and destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is that chosen descendant. He is that seed. He's the fulfillment of that, that promise back at the dawning of the world. So it's important that Jesus is the seed, he's the descendant of the, of the woman. But at the same time, he's not, at least in the direct sense, a child of Adam, is he? A child of man. He's conceived by God in the woman's womb. There's something new going on here, a new start for humanity that has not been seen since the creation of the world. As the New Testament authors um, explain the significance of, of Jesus in this, in this way, they come to call him a, a new Adam. It's compared with Adam in this way. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 22, we're told this, for as in Adam, first man, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so there's this, we're, we're sort of holding up these two kind of ways of being human, right? As in Adam, all die. That's all of our default state, right? Because we're children of Adam and Eve. We are, we are children of rebellion against God, and we have inherited the curse of sin and death. As in Adam, all die. As the old New England Catechism went, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. But the hope is that God has not left us in the mess of our own making, but that he has sent his son Jesus into the world. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That as in Adam the curse falls upon us all, in Christ the curse can be lifted from us all. He's the, he's the curse lifter. He's the snake crusher. And so Jesus comes, and, and what does he do? Right, The, the child in, in, that she, Mary felt kicking in her womb, she would one day see struggling on the cross. Because Christ came to bear the curse of sin and death, which we deserve. But Christ came as a new and better Adam. He did not deserve the curse of sin and death. Christ came, and as we see in the Gospels, faced every temptation that we do, except he stood firm. Where, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. So that when the time came for Christ to be crucified, he was killed not as one who deserved death, but as an innocent, as the spotless lamb of God. And so he was able in his purity to take upon himself the sins of the world. And so in this way, Christ lifts from us, all who believe in him, the curse of sin and death. It's the new Adam in this way. But it doesn't end there, right? It doesn't end with Christ's death. It's not just his death that frees us from the curse. He then is raised from the dead, right? Death 
death swallows a man and meets God, as Chrysostom said. And so Christ defeats death, and in his resurrection, in this new life, he's, he's spoken of in the New Testament as the firstborn of a new creation. He's the firstborn of a resurrection. Not only does he die to take away our curse, he's raised to cause us to be born again in a new life. And we experience that new life both spiritually as the new birth in this life and one day bodily at the resurrection when our very bodies will be raised to live with him forever in a new creation. A resurrected humanity in a resurrected world worshiping a resurrected Christ. He's the new Adam. Who is this child? He's the son of David. He's the son of the Most High, which means that he's, he's still the seed of the woman, but he's a new Adam. And perhaps most significantly, he is God with us. We cannot miss this. This is perhaps the most important fact of Christmas. This is why this is, why this is radical. God had sent saviors to Israel before many, over and over and over again. David was one, Moses. This is, this is different this time. Never before has it been said of anyone born of a woman that this is the son of the most high, the son of God. When Jesus, later in his ministry, made this claim to the scribes and Pharisees, claiming that he was the son of the Father, that he had come from the Father and that he would go again to the Father, they tried to stone him. They tried to kill him because they recognized the claim that he was making. And this is explicit in the Gospels. They say, we know that in calling yourself the Son of God, you're making yourself equal to God. And this is very clear as you read the words of Jesus. Jesus was under no illusions. He believed that he was God in the flesh. And this is the, this is the thing that changes everything about understanding who Jesus is. A lot of people have, have, have often heard the objection sort of from those in kind of an agnostic camp saying, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in God if he would just show himself. You know, if he would just reveal himself, to, if, if he would just kind of like, pr like prove to me that there's a God and I'll believe it, right? But he's, he's hidden. You can't see him. Except that you can. Except that he has revealed himself. And God has spoken throughout the centuries through the prophets, but in these last days he's revealed himself through his son that God has actually come to us as if, as if talking to a child, he's, he's lowered himself, right, to get on our level, only we're a lot lower than God. And so to get on our level, he actually, he actually took on true humanity. God with us, Emmanuel, that's one of the titles for Messiah in, in Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And here we wade into deep water, here we wade into deep mysteries, which in, well, which in many ways are beyond our understanding. God with us, truly God and truly man, united in one person. We can articulate it. We can see it in the person of Jesus. 
Can I understand it in every way? No. But I believe it because here he is and he rose from the dead. God with us. And the significance of this is not merely that we can, like, as, as intellectual eggheads say, okay, now I can know that there is a God because he's appeared. It's more than that. Why would God humble himself in this way? Why would God humble himself to take on the form of a servant and then further to, to taste death? God. Why would he do this? Love. God so loved the world. We had run from him. We were running full tilt away from him. And he came after us because his desire is to know us. One of the deepest and saddest rifts described in the account of the fall in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned is that before the fall, God walked with them in the garden. They knew God and he knew them and they were naked and unashamed. You see, friends, we were made to know God. We were made to walk with him. And whether we, whether we realize it explicitly or not, the deepest longing underneath all our longings is to know him and to be known by him. We were made to know our creator. And when we turn from him, when we rebelled against him, when we rebel against him even today, either passively or actively running from him, he could have just let us go, couldn't he? Wouldn't have been unjust. But he didn't just let us go. He came after us to reveal himself to we who were his enemies, to save us, to give himself for us, what is this? It is love. It is the love of God. One of our questions is, is there a God? But perhaps a deeper question in some ways is, what kind of God is he? Sometimes we imagine, or at least we worry, that God is a cold or distant or uncaring God. Sometimes we feel by his apparent absence that he is far from us in the darkness. He is not. His heart is for us. And whatever our doubts, we cannot doubt what we see in the face of Jesus Christ. We cannot doubt what we see in the manger. This is God with us. This is the love of God. And my prayer for, for us this Christmas, if we, if we do nothing else, if we understand nothing else about Christmas, is that we would understand in the incarnation of the Son the heart of God for sinners, the heart of God for humanity. Even after this ex explanation, you, I imagine that Mary still probably had questions. <laughs> Verse 36, Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So there's evidence of the fact that 
miraculous conception can happen in the mercy and power of God, he points to Elizabeth. He says, call up Elizabeth, find out what's happened with her. Elizabeth, her, her older relative, who had been barren during childbearing years and was now far past them, who had now conceived in her old age, even as their ancestor Sarah had did, had done so many hundreds of years before. And the angel points to this and says, look, nothing is impossible with God. This can help us in our questions. People sometimes, well, we're dealing with the incarnation and we're dealing with the virgin birth and, and con conception and those are big miracles to imagine, aren't they? Those are things far beyond our human ability or power. Many people in our day um, come to passages like this and to great and miraculous works of God and say, it's not possible. And sometimes something like, it's not possible because I've never seen it. And sometimes we wrongly imagine that in, in Bible times, <laughs> that miracles were happening all the time, that this was just sort of run-of-the-mill ordinary stuff. The, the power of a miracle is not that it is ordinary or even that it is possible, but that it is impossible. If God showed himself to his people across the years only in things which seemed possible to us, possible to humanity, what evidentiary power would they have that the power of God is at work? Actually, the power of a miracle is its impossibility in terms of human terms. Mary was not used to seeing and experiencing virgin births. It's the first time it had ever happened. It was impossible in the human sense. Elizabeth conceiving an old age, impossible, any doctor would have told you so. And yet it happened. And we can point at many other miracles, even the miracles of Christ. The healing of the blind by putting mud on someone's eyes, impossible. The raising of Lazarus from the dead simply by calling him out of the tomb, impossible. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead after brutal crucifixion by the Romans, impossible. And yet, here they stand. And yet, here Jesus stands. Nothing will be impossible with God. Conceiving of the world, and particularly of the difficulties and the futility of this world, only on the human level can lead us to hopelessness and despair. And indeed, we live in a generation of despair, um, which either has explicitly or implicitly given itself over to nihilism. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no story. There is no end towards which this is all going. It's all meaningless unless we create our own meaning which is only as valuable as the paper we print it on.
Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. The hope that we have in the face of certain realities which would lead us to hopelessness, if all the hope we have is our own power, is the power of God, that there is one greater than us, that actually the power which spoke the world into being is, well, as the carol says, God is not dead nor does he sleep. And he is at work in the world recreating. And he will make all things new. And this through his son, the son of David, the son of the Most High, the seed of the woman, the new Adam, Emmanuel, God with us, Christ laid in the manger. Will we receive him? Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, that it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There's a contrast here. Earlier in the chapter, the angel Gabriel on his little announcement tour had announced to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant. And Zechariah had more questions than Mary had. Zechariah, verse 18, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And for, for questioning the word of the angel, he's, uh, he's made mute. He can't talk until the baby's born. Mary shows no, no such questions. She, she, has some, she has some questions about the details. So how's this going to happen? But when all the explanation is given, she simply resigns herself to the word and will of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She hears the word of God. She hears the hope of God. She hears the promises and the promises of the word which she had heard as, as a child. She hears the hopes and fears of all the years concentrated on her. And she says, Amen. I have heard the word of God. I believe it. So be it. Will we say the same this Christmas? As we have heard the word of God, as we have as we have seen God, in a sense, with our very eyes, God before us in the manger, our Savior, will we trust in him? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you and we look to your Son, the Lord Jesus. We look to you for hope. We look to you for salvation. We look to you because we long for you, because our hearts cry out for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We need you, Father. And we pray that in the coming hours and days, you'd show us your love, that this Christmas, you would fill us with the love of God, which surpasses all understanding. That you'd show us your love in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who have known you for years, or for a short time, Lord, that you'd refresh us in your love. And please, Lord, for those who are here who may never have come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that they would know it, come to know it this Christmas. Even as a Savior was born to Mary, that salvation would be born to us this Christmas season. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and we'll praise God. Forgive me. I've done this two weeks in a row now. Gabriel, would you come light the candles for us? It's the fourth week of Advent. We need to light the fourth Advent candle. Some of you should have yelled, someone should have yelled at me halfway through the sermon. Tonight we'll start the Christmas Eve service with all four outer candles lit and we'll light the, the Christ candle halfway through the service. Great, thank you, Gabriel. Let's stand together and praise the Lord. Praise God from whom all...